This stuff is Daf Pehe in Yoma. We had a problem with the recording, so I'm re-recording it. We're starting about 10 lines from the bottom of Pehdaladamud Bet, which was where there are two dots, even though according to the, uh, according to the uh, indications on the side, the two dots are a mistake, but we had stopped there on the previous day, so I'm going to pick up from there, where it says, Mechabin uh, Umafsikin. It was talking about uh, if a fire is approaching, we're allowed to intercept the fire in order to save lives. Gemara says, Lamali, why does it say this? To tell you that even if uh, it's even if the, the the people are located in a different chatzer, they're located in a different um, in a different courtyard. You're still allowed to intercept the fire and put it out in courtyard A to protect the people who are in. Courtyard B. That's the chidush. That's a novel point there. Amar Yosef, Amar Yehuda, Amar Shmuel. Rav Yosef said that Rav Yehuda said that Shmuel said when it comes to saving a life, we don't follow the majority. Now, what does that mean exactly? If you're going to tell me that we're talking about a case where there are nine Jews and one Gentile, so then obviously. Uh, that that would be a case where, of course, we follow the majority. That that uh, right because uh, the the majority is Jewish, but rather, so that's a Ruban Yisrael Ninhu. In other words, that's the case where the majority are Jewish. Ella Palga Palga. Rather, you'll tell me where it's five and five. Let's say, but again, Safek Nefashot Lakel. There you have a doubt, uh, and in a doubt, we're always going to go. Uh, to the lenient side. In other words, we're going to intervene or do whatever type of chilul Shabbat is necessary to save a situ- save lives in a situation where half and half are Jewish because even if only half the group is Jewish, that is a safek nefashot, a doubt, and we're going to be stringent about the saving of lives and we're going to allow Shabbat to be broken. Rather, when he said that we don't follow the majority when it comes to saving lives, he meant when there were nine non-Jews and one Jew. But then it, again, the Gemara says, "Hanami pshita." That should be obvious to have a le kavua. We call kavua kemechtzal mechtzadame. We have a rule kavua. Whenever there is a an entity that we know is present, even if it is a minority, uh, that entity is still significant. It isn't nullified. And the classic case of this has to do with where you have, for instance, um, a you know that there is a that there is a, a store in town that sells non-kosher food and you don't know which one of the stores you went to, even if nine of them are kosher and one is non-kosher, the fact that there is a presence there of a non-kosher store uh, changes the picture. And the same would be true here, that if you have one Jew in the mix, that's going to change the picture and say that we have to save everybody um, to be sure that we, uh, we save the Jew. That's called kavua. Right, so the Gemara says again, The Chidush is when they moved to another Chatzir, to another courtyard. And, uh, and there we say that uh, something fell, something collapsed, and lives had to be saved. Because now, you might have thought, called the parish that maybe the people who drifted away from the group into the other courtyard and then had something collapse and then that was just the non-Jews, since nine of the people were non-Jewish and only one of them was Jewish, maybe the people who went into the other chatzer and ended up in trouble are the, the non-Jews, because they, they separated from the group, and we assume that whatever separates from the group is the majority. So it says, Over there, even though nine out of the ten people were non-Jewish, and, a, and some segment of the group went into another courtyard, we still have to save everybody who went into that other courtyard because of the possibility that there is a Jew among them. And is that really true? Didn't Rabbi Yassi say in the name of Rabbi Yochanan that if you have, two non, if you have ten, nine 
Gentiles and one Jew, then if there is a disaster in the courtyard where they're all located, we have to save them. But if they move to another courtyard, we don't have to save them. Isn't that what we said? Ein mefakhin. So it says, lakashia. Ha deparush kulu. Ha deparush mektsatayu. It depends. If all of them moved. In other words, if you know that there was a Jew in the group and the group moved then to another uh, to another uh, courtyard. So even though they are mobile and therefore there's the possibility that one of, that the Jew who was in the group got lost. But since the entire group moved into the second location, even though they're, uh, they're spread out and it's possible that the Jew is no longer in the group, we still save everybody lest we, you know, risk the life of a Jew. However, if only a portion of the group went into the second chatzir and there was a disaster. We don't assume that that small portion of the group that moved into the second area included the Jews since we have a rule that kol de parosh that we assume that anyone who separates from the group is, uh, represents the majority. So then the Gemara asks, Kumi Amar Shmuel Hachid, did Shmuel really say this? We said that when it comes to if you find a uh, a, uh, a a random child that is abandoned. So if the, the majority of people in the area are Gentiles, we assume he's a Gentile. If the majority of people in the area are Jews, we assume he's a Jew. If they're 50-50, we assume he's a Jew. And Rab said that to make the point that that's only with respect to whether we have to take care of the child. That we say since, you know, we assume he's a Jew, if it's 50-50, be, in the sense that we have to take care of him, but we can't definitively decide that he's a Jew for him to, let's say, for instance, if it's a girl, marry a Kohen, because it could be that really she is not a Jew and uh, she can't marry a Kohen. We turn to We're talking about a situation of, of saving life. That if a if if uh, there's a collapse on top of the uh, on top of such a person, that we will violate Shabbat in order to extract them. That um, and Rashi says that Shmuel said lefakech alav etagal kamadim rov Yisrael, aval mechtal mechtal lo v'koshkin rov kutiim. That only if the majority are uh, Jewish. Now, we, now part of that Rashi doesn't. It, it seems like um, like the Bach is uh, fixing it, but the uh, the point is that he, we said before that if it's mechtal mechtaf, it's fifty fifty. So then we assume Yisrael. We assume he's a Jew. And Shmuel said that that's with respect to saving him. In other words, we say that, um, that, we, uh, that we have to extract him from the situation of danger uh, in a case where there's a doubt when it's 50-50. But if it's the majority, if you have Rov Kutim, if you have the majority, meaning nine out of, you know, 90% of the people in that area are non-Jews, then we wouldn't extract the, the person who is the uh, anonymous person from the, uh, from the collapse because the assumption would be that we wouldn't have the right to violate Shabbat on their behalf. So it says, We have to amend what Shmuel said in order that it fit with what he said before because before he said we don't go by the majority. Here it sounds like he's saying we go by the majority. If the majority were uh, Gentiles, then we would not save. But before he said we don't go by the majority. So it says that's true. We have to correct what he said here with regard to uh, this situation. That it meant, that when it says if the majority were non-Jewish, we assume he's non-Jewish, 
That's where he said, with regard to saving life, that is not true. In other words, in every other respect, if the majority of the people are non-Jewish, we assume that the individual was non-Jewish. But when it comes to uh, saving life, even if the majority in the area are non-Jewish, since there is a percentage that are Jewish, we save the person on the, uh, you know, on the chance that they may be Jewish, even though the majority of the people in that area are non-Jewish. That was what Shmuel meant. And he was clarifying that we don't go by the majority in, this, in order to exempt ourselves from a rescue mission on Shabbat. We, uh, in, uh, in fact, it's the opposite. Uh, we, would, we would conduct the rescue mission even if there was a one in, you know, even a small percentage of chance that there would be a Jew that would be saved. Now the Gemara says, Lemai, so the question is like this. When we said that if the majority of people in the area are non-Jews, we treat him as a non-Jew, what is the halachic implication of that? What is the halacha there? Since we just established that um, it's, it doesn't determine whether we would save him from, from danger or not, and, and therefore, uh, she says, also would not determine whether we would take care of the child or not, since there's a possibility, even if it's a 5% or 1% possibility that the child might be Jewish, we're going to take care of their life. So that can't be the significance of the statement that if the majority of people in the area are non-Jewish, that we treat the child as a non-Jew. So what is the halachic implication? It means that we don't have to be worried about feeding the child non-kosher. In other words, until he formally converts or she formally converts when they reach the age of, age of majority, we don't have to worry about feeding them non-kosher. Right? Then the, the, the bright also said in Rovi Yisrael Yisrael, if the majority of people in the area are Jews, then we treat them as a Jew. Now, like we said before, when it comes to saving lives, we don't go by the majority. So in what respect is it significant that the majority of people were Jewish or non-Jewish? So it says, You have to return his lost object. And if this person was from a place where the majority of people were Jewish, even though we don't have definitive proof that he's Jewish, we have to return his object. It's like we would return a Jew's object. Okay, now if he was from a place where the majority of the people were non-Jewish, so the implication would be that we would be able to allow him to eat non-kosher and we wouldn't have to return his object. So now Gemara says, When it says, if it's 50-50, 50% 50 of the people in the area are Jewish, 50 non-Jewish, so then we treat him like a Yisrael. So the question is, what's the implication of that? That's with respect to Nezek, with respect to uh, monetary payment for damages. Because the rule is that if a Jewish person's ox gores a non-Jew, he's exempt in a bitin. However, if a non-Jew's ox gores a Jewish ox, he always has to pay full price, full damage. If a Jew gores another Jew, if a Jew's ox gores another Jew, then the first few times, it's called a shortam, he only has to pay half. After the uh, ox becomes established as a gorer, then he has to pay full. That's the rule. So, the, the, so, he, so what Rish Lakish says is that the significance of the status of this uh, unknown child, anonymous child, is that he's going to be treated as a Jew with respect to damages. So it says, in what case? If you're going to say because that if our ox gored his ox, we have to pay him. Right? So then we could say, um, in other words, he, if our ox gored his ox, since there's a possibility that he's a non-Jew, we should be able to say that, uh, uh, that we don't want to pay him because maybe he's a non-Jew. So it should be, a, a, the general rule is, somebody is trying to extract money, they are the ones that have to bring the burden of pr- have the burden of proof. And since he can't prove that he's Jewish, he can't demand the money from us. But Rather, it's talking about where his 
uh, ox gored our ox. In which case, if he's a non-Jew, he would have to pay full. If he's a Jew, we would have to pay only half. So palgaya hivle, right? So in, he only has to pay half. Why? Because because he can always say, prove that I am not Jewish, that I have to pay the full amount. In other words, there he has the advantage being a Jew in monetary matters because he can say that if my ox, as a, a question, as a doubtful Jew, gored somebody else who is definitely a Jew. Um, def- I have to pay only half because since I'm a doubtful Jew, I only definitely have to pay half. If you want me to pay full, you have to prove that I'm a non-Jew. And since you can't prove that I'm a non-Jew, I'm not going to pay the full. So in that way, he gets some advantage out of this doubtful status as a uh, possible Jew, possible non-Jew. Now it says, Mishnah Falav Mapolet B'chulei. If um, a, uh, a building collapses on people and we save them, so it says whether they're there or not, whether they're alive or not, whether they're Yisrael or uh, whether it's, it's a doubt whether they're there or not, it's a doubt whether they're alive or dead, and it's a doubt whether they're a Jew or a non-Jew. In all those cases, we save them. So it says, Mike Amar, what's the reason for all three cases? It says, Lomi Bayas. It's really, what it means is, Lomi Bayak Amar. It's telling you a build-up. Lomi Bayas, Safek Husham, Safek Inosham. Not only can we dig out the collapse, the ruins, if we're in doubt, maybe there's somebody there at all, right? Im ite chayhu Right, so that meaning that if they're there, they're alive. Even if we're not sure if they're alive, they might just be dead. In other words, we don't know if they're there or not, and they might even be dead. So we still dig out. And not only if we have a doubt about maybe there's a person there who's alive who's Jewish. Even if the doubt is even further than that, there's a doubt whether they're there or not. There's a doubt whether the person's alive or not. And there's a doubt whether he's Jewish or not. We still would dig them out based on all those doubts. Now, if we find that he's alive, we continue I'm excavating to extract him. So that should be obvious. The chidush is that even though he might only live a short time after that, we still take him out of the rubble. In other words, even though he, we might know that he's critically wounded or fatally wounded, he's not going to be able to live for that much longer, but we still take him out um, for the time that he's going to be alive. Now it says, if he's dead, we leave him there. So it says, that should be obvious. If he's dead, what are we going to do with him that we should have to take him out of the rubble? This is necessary for what Rabbi Yudab and Lakish said. The rabbi said, we don't save a dead body uh, from a fire on Shabbat because we're not saving any life. So there's no reason to carry the body from a private to a public domain and to handle the on Shabbat just because the fire is coming. I'm Rabbi Yudab and Lakish Shamati. Rabbi Yudav and Lakish said, I heard a tradition, that we do save a dead body from a fire. If there's somebody died on Shabbat and is in the, their body is in the house, we can remove it from a fire so that it doesn't get burned um, on Shabbat. But even though there's no practical reason, but there's a dignity of the dead body. What's the reason why Rabbi Yehuda said that over there that you can move the dead body? Because since the person's very upset and concerned about the dignity of their lost relative, right? If we don't allow him to move the body, he's going to come to extinguish the fire. But here, if we don't allow him to take the body out of the rubble, He's not going to do anything else. Any other Chilul Shabbat, he's just going to leave him there. So therefore, we tell him not to handle the body. So even according to Yudab and Lakish, that a dead body in a house that's going to be burnt up, he's allowed to remove to protect the dignity of the uh, body and so that he doesn't come to extinguish the flame, that doesn't apply to this case.
do we have to check to see if a person's still alive in the rubble at Chotmo until their nose to see if they're breathing? Some say no until the heart to see if the heart's beating. If we check, if there's, a, there's a collapse, there is a, uh, a building collapse, and we check the upper levels of the rubble and we find that everyone's dead. You can't assume that the people on the bottom have died because it's possible that people on the top died, but people on the bottom have an air pocket and they lived. There's a situation, a specific situation, where they found that the people on uh, higher up in the in the uh, uh, on the ruins were dead, but the people below were alive. Maybe this machloket about checking the nose for breathing versus checking the heart for beating is actually connected to another machloket. From where does a child begin to form in the womb of the mother? From the from the hedge. Because it says. You took me out from the innards of my mother. And it says, cut your hair and throw it. So you see that the word gozi, to cut or to remove, is related to hair and related to the head. And therefore it means that I was formed in my mother's womb, starting with my head. You took me out of my mother's womb and I was, I was formed from the head first. That's the way that they're interpreting the pasuk, meaning that the beginning of, the, of life is from the head. Abba Shaul says from the center of the body, meaning the heart. Um, and then it extends out from the center. Right? So you see from there the same thing, that according to the first Tanah here, that a person, a, a baby, a fetus, begins developing from its head, so therefore we also check to see if the baby is alive or the person is alive by checking their head, by checking the breathing. And according to, to Abba Shaul, that a person's life begins from the center of the body, so do we check the center of the body for heartbeat. But it says, no, Abba Shaul, even Abba Shaul might agree when it comes to checking for signs of life. Abba Shaul was only saying in terms of how a child is, how a child is formed in the mother's womb. Because he's saying that everything begins from the center. But when it comes to um, when it comes to life, in other words, to the survival of a person, even Abba Shaul will agree that you can tell from the nose, from the breathing. As it says, as it says in the description of the Mabul, anyone who had the breath of life in his nostrils was wiped out from the Mabul. So you see from there that breath in the nostrils is a sign of life. This is only this whole discussion about whether you check breathing or you check the heartbeat is only when you you find the bottom of the body first. In other words, you find the person's legs and you're working your way up and you get to the heartbeat. Right there, according to one opinion, when you get to the heartbeat, if you could see that the person is has died, you don't go any further. According to the other opinion, no, you have to keep going till you get to the nose and see if he's breathing. Okay. But but if you're going downwards, but everybody agrees that if you already check for breathing and there's no breathing, he's definitely dead. So if you started from the top and you uncovered the face first as you're you're uh, removing the rubble, so and he's not breathing, you don't have to go any further to check the heart. So if you're coming from down upwards and you check the heart first, there's a machlok at whether that is sufficient to indicate that the person is dead. But everybody agrees that if you find no breathing, the person is dead. It happened that Rabbi Ishmael and Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah were walking on the way. Levi Sadar and Levi Sadar, which may be somebody who recited teachings, it's not exactly clear what Hasadar means here. Um, uh, it could be Hasarad, which means somebody who made clothing. And so it turned out that the three rabbis, Rabbi Ishmael, Rabbi Akiva, and Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah, were walking. 
and they viased Adam Rabbi Shmuel ben Oshel Shel Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah. Rabbi Shmuel, the son of Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah, were walking achrehin behind them. Nishalash elazo bifnehin. And the following question was asked to the rabbis. How do we have a source? What is the source that saving a life overrides Shabbat? We see that the Torah allows a person who is accosted by an intruder in their house who's coming to, to, to rob them, he's allowed to kill the intruder. Right? You see, that in this case, even though it's a doubt whether the burglar is actually threatening my life, yet, and murder is such an extremely stringent thing that it defiles the land, and it causes the divine presence to be removed from Israel, and yet I can get up and I can kill the burglar, even though it's only a doubt whether my life was in danger. Certainly, uh, saving a life is... Uh, going to override Shabbat. So you see that a doubtful pikoch nefesh even um, overrides Shabbat. Right? That was the question. Even though it's not clear, it seems like that's what the question was. How do you know that even doubtful pikoch nefesh, doubtful saving of a life, overrides Shabbat? You see from that case that you can override the prohibition of murder for a doubtful saving of life. So you can also override Shabbat for a doubtful saving of life. Now Rabbi Akiva, Amar, Rabbi Akiva gave a different answer. It says that if a person is an intentional killer, right? It says, from, on, from my altar you can take him to die. Now in the Pshat, in the simple meaning of the Pasuk, is that if the person runs to the Mizbeach or is, at, or is serving in the Beit HaMikdash or whatever it is, you can remove him, the criminal, to die. But the rabbis interpreted to me, no, that you can even take a person who is, um, who is there, uh, to, to serve as a witness, as we're gonna see. So it says, uh, meaning from my altar, but not from on my altar. Meaning if the per, if the Kohen is actually in the middle of Avodah, we don't interrupt him in order to pursue a capital murder, ca- uh, crime. But if he has not yet begun, the Avodah, then we do take him. If he's in the middle of it, we don't interrupt him. That's only true, said Rabbi Yochanan, when it comes to killing the person. In other words, if we need to, uh, we need evidence from this Kohen to convict the murderer, we don't interrupt the Avodah. But to save the murderer, even if the Kohen is in the middle of serving, he's in the middle of doing Avodah, we, don't, we, we will interrupt him and take him to the Beit so that he can exonerate the murderer to save his life. So what do you see from that? So you see here that even though we don't know if this Kohen's testimony will really exonerate the alleged murderer, we don't know. And yet we interrupt the Avodah to bring him to the Betin to get his testimony to see if we can save the life of the accused murderer. So, and, and we know that Avodah normally even overrides Shabbat because the Avodah and the Bet HaMikdash, even though it involved many Melachot, overrides Shabbat. So, and yet we override the Avodah to save the life of a potential murderer. So you see that saving a life, even a doubtful possibility of saving a life, overrides the Avodah, which overrides Shabbat. So therefore the doubtful saving of a life will definitely override Shabbat itself. Now, now Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah, I guess it's Shleif Amar, he gave the following answer. If you see that you can perform a Brit Milan Shabbat, which only corrects, fixes one limb of the 248 limbs of the body, and you can do it on Shabbat. So, so definitely to save the entire body of the person, meaning their life, overrides Shabbat. Now the Gemara says, 
that Rabbi Yosef Rabbi Yehuda Omer further explanations. Rabbi Yosef Rabbi Yehuda says no. At Shabbatotai Tishmaru, it says you should keep my Shabbat, my Shabbatot, my Sabbaths. At Shabbatotai Tishmaru, Yachol Lakol. Maybe you'll think that means in every, in no matter what, that there's never any time you can break Shabbat. Talmud Lomar Ach. It says Ach at Shabbatotai Tishmaru. Ach always implies a limitation. Chalak, it's differentiating, it's making a limitation on it and saying that in a case of pikoach nefesh, you can violate Shabbat. Now again, uh, Rabbi Yonatan ben Yosef Omer, Kikodesh ilachem, it says, Shabbat is holy for you. He biyada. It is in your hands, but you are not in it, its hands. Meaning to say that we don't um, put Shabbat over the saving of a life and we say that to save a life, you're allowed to violate Shabbat because you should not give your life to preserve Shabbat. Rabbi Shimon ben Shabbat, and of course we know the pasuk goes on the Shabbat. The Jewish people should observe Shabbat to do Shabbat. Break one Shabbat, so that you will be able to observe many Shabbatot. No, so that means that you, we, we see that breaking Shabbat is okay because it enables the observance of further Shabbatot. Rabbi Yudah said in the name of Shmuel, if I had been there, I would have said my own. In other words, Shmuel said, Rabbi Yudah, Rav Yudah rather, reported that Shmuel said that if I had been there, I would have given an even better interpretation. Mine is better than theirs. The most famous drasha is, that you should live by the, by the Torah, you shouldn't die by the mitzvot. And therefore, that means that we should save even a doubt of pikoach nefesh, a doubtful danger to life, um, overrides Shabbat, because you should not die for the mitzvot, you should live. They're in order for us to live. All of the explanations have a refutation. We could potentially challenge them. Bar except for There's no refutation. Because when it comes to Rabbi Ishmael's interpretation that he based it on the burglar who breaks in and you're allowed to kill the burglar even though you don't know his intentions. Maybe it's like Rabbi It's not a doubt about the burglar whether he's going to kill you or not. The assumption is that any burglar who breaks in is going to kill you. Because the person will, the, he knows that the homeowner will defend his property. And therefore, And he, so the burglar who goes in is already prepared and says, I know that if the homeowner sees me, he's going to defend his property with his own life, you know, even at the expense of my life. And, and therefore, um, if I see him, in other words, I know that the owner is going to stand up against me and, and, and defend his property. Therefore, if I see him, I'm going to kill him. So the burglar who comes in is intending, if he has to, to kill the homeowner. And the Torah says, If somebody comes to kill you, you have to kill him first. So therefore, it is, So there, therefore, it's not really a doubt. It's not maybe this burglar will kill me. Uh, and therefore, I'm allowed to defend my property. It's definitely he will kill me if I end up standing up against him because he was planning already that he knew that I would defend my property if I happened to be home and if I happened to catch him. And therefore, he had it in the back of his mind that he was going to kill me. And so I'm actually saving my life for sure. It's not a doubt. For the Rabbi Akiva Nami, what about Rabbi Akiva? Dilma. Abaye could be like Abaye says, Damar Abaye, Masrin Alei, Zugad Rabbanan Lida, Im Yesh Mamash Bedvarav. There, what, did, what was Rabbi Akiva's reasoning? He said that just like we can take a Kohen, we can interrupt the Avodah of the Kohen in order to get testimony from him to exonerate a murderer or an accused murderer. So you see that even though we don't know if his testimony is really going to exonerate the murderer, so you see that a doubt maybe we'll be able to save the murderer's life was enough to override the Avodah. And the, and the Avodah, of course, overrides Shabbat. So definitely saving, a doubtful saving of life 
will override Shabbat. It says not true because maybe just like in other cases, just like we know in the classic case where the victim himself, or the, sorry, the, the uh, convict himself rather, um, who is being led out to be executed, says, uh, I have an argument that I didn't bring up in court that could save my life. We allow him to have a retrial as many times as possible to save his life, but we first send two Tambidei Chachamim to interview him and make sure that he really has a, a legitimate argument before we have a retrial again and again and before we interrupt the process of executing him. So to here, maybe we send two Tambidei Chachamim to this Kohen who's in the middle of the Avodah and make sure before we interrupt the Avodah that his testimony really will exonerate the killer or the accused killer before we interrupt the Avodah. So that shows you that we only interrupt it when there's a Vadai because we first vet the testimony and make sure that it actually has substance before we just go on out and interrupt the Avodah. So that means we have Vadai there. But Safeg Minalan, how do we know that even if it's a doubt, we would still interrupt the Avodah? Right, we don't have that clear. And the same is true for all of these interpretations. All of the interpretations that show that there's a basis for violating Shabbat to save life could only be talking about, might potentially only be talking about cases where it's a definite saving of life. But the Shmuel Vadai let but when it comes to Shmuel, there's no refutation because it says v'chai bahem. V'chai bahem means to preserve life, which means even when there is a doubt that life could be in danger, we still say v'chai bahem, life comes first. And that would mean even if it's a doubt. You see from this that uh, what Rav Nachman Bar Ravina said, and some say it was Rav Nachman Bar Yitzchak said, that one sharp pepper is better than a basket full of gourds, a basket full of, um, of dull, you know, less sharp fruits. Meaning to say that this one sharp answer of Shmuel had more uh, significance and was more, uh, you know, and was more decisive and definitive than a whole group of other answers that did not pass muster and were not fully convincing.